Hello and welcome back to the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge. My name is Jeremy Howard, pastoring Orchard Hills Bible Church in Payson, Utah. Thanks for joining today. Well, we are in the book of Romans, following along with the curriculum schedule produced by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for the Come Follow Me Sunday School curriculum for their organization. And what I'm doing is just following along that schedule, not looking at their curriculum, but offering uh, my insights as a Bible church pastor for those who are interested in hearing that, maybe those who are even in the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and are following along in their Sunday school program with all of this and just want to hear what someone like me has to say. That's really kind of the goal. And if that's you, I'm especially glad that you're here. Well, last week was a bit of a longer episode as we looked at Romans 1 through 5, this very important book, Romans, and the incredible doctrines that are found in it concerning the gospel. This week, we will be looking just at one chapter, Romans chapter 8, continuing to consider this really, really important message of grace, the good news, the gospel of hope, and what it means to be redeemed, justified, declared innocent, totally forgiven by God. But first, before we get into that, I want to bring up again this chart I shared with you last week, this chart that I did not make. I got from webtruth.org. There are lots of charts you can get for every book of the Bible, and I highly recommend them. In fact, I actually highly recommend making your own after you figure out how they work like this. Um, Making your own is really a good practice, helps you learn books of the Bible in uh, really just interesting ways that you otherwise wouldn't. Well, the book of Romans can be broken down into basic, basically five categories, talking about sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, talking about, of course, God's sovereignty, and service. So you see that if you're following along on video here in this middle row, you have the titles for these sections. Um, even alliterated, all start with S. <laughs> and last week, we looked at the first two sections that covered chapters 1 through 5. The section on sin, where all people are condemned in their sin, willfully having rebelled against God, and yet God has provided salvation for all people in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the way that this chart sums it up is in chapters 1 through 3, about the middle of chapter 3, righteousness is required by God, because of human guilt. And yet the title of the next section, middle of chapter 3 through the end of chapter 5, is Righteousness is Imputed by Divine Grace. Righteousness Imputed, meaning the person who is forgiven by God, who has placed his faith in Jesus Christ, is reckoned or considered, credited, counted as the very righteousness of God because of what Jesus has done on his behalf and his ob obtaining that salvation through faith alone. So he needs righteousness because of his guilt. He is utterly sinful and he needs perfect eternal righteousness in order to make up for his guilt because of his own sin. And that righteousness is available because of God's grace in the person and work of Jesus. That's the good news. So as you're listening to this, it's, of course, very appropriate for you to ask yourself, have I been credited, counted as, 
reckoned righteous in God's sight because I've truly believed in the finished work of Jesus. The first two and a half chapters of the book talk about the need for salvation, and yet we saw last week uh, he doesn't leave us there. He goes on to talk about the plan of salvation, starting in Romans 3.21 through the end of chapter 5. All right. Well, this week we're getting into this next part of the book, which covers three remaining sections, but we're only going to be looking at chapter 8. Only going to look at chapter 8. And what if I, for those, ah, I just moved the wrong thing. Let me move me. There we go. And I still need to move the other thing too. So now you can see all three of those other columns. There we go. About like that. The, um, the next section, chapters 6 through 8, are going to focus on sanctification. Okay, But it's also going to be referencing salvation that we had just looked at last week. But it, it will discuss in chapters 6, 7, and 8, righteousness enabled through spiritual life. And then in chapters 9 through 11, we'll see God's sovereignty come to light. And the focus here is righteousness is obtained by unmerited mercy, particularly on the people of Israel and their future restoration that God has planned for them. And then finally, chapters 12 to the end will really focus on service, the fruit of salvation, how righteousness is displayed in the Christian's daily walk. But this week, we're just going to be looking at chapter 8, because chapter 8 actually uh, blends together really beautifully sanctification and salvation. Now, I, I say blend together. That's, that's not the right terminology, because salvation and sanctification are different, all right? So that they're not mixed together um, as far as being justified, which happens in a moment, when someone first believes and God declares that person forgiven and innocent forever based on the righteousness that he imputes to the believer, that happens in a moment. And what happens after that is sanctification. From that moment on, when that person first believes until that person dies, that person is becoming more and more like Jesus as God is working in his or her heart, causing him to grow, mature, be conformed, to the image of Christ himself. Now, salvation, though, is kind of a—it's a big word. A lot of times we think about justification when we say salvation. We think of that initial moment when a person first believes. But actually, the New Testament talks about salvation in multiple ways. That is one of the ways. But the Scriptures also say that Christians are being saved. Not just they have been saved, but they are being saved. And so, in that sense— our salvation continues through sanctification. And Scripture also talks about believers will be saved. So salvation is still future in a sense also, in that one day when Jesus returns, we will be glorified, we shall be like him, we will be changed in an instant, and that too can be rightly called salvation. So salvation is past tense, present tense, and future tense. Justification, though, this this legal act of God who is our judge declaring us innocent before him based on the finished work of Christ, when we, when we believe, truly believe in Jesus and his finished work, that is a one-time deal, and that, for every believer, that is a past tense thing because it happens when that initial belief takes place. And it, 
it's not like justification develops or evolves or continues from there, like in a way that we have to sustain it or maintain it. Justification is a declaration of God that is once for all. And so it stays with us through our lives and into eternity, but the declaration doesn't have to keep happening. It doesn't have to happen a second time. When God says it, it is final. And so justification is past, and sanctification continues. So what's happening in Romans 8 is you have Paul, the author of the book of Romans, making reference back to justification quite a bit. I mean, it happens in all of Paul's letters all the time, actually, when he's writing to believers. But he's also now bringing along this concept of sanctification. So our salvation is we have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved justification, sanctification, glorification. And Paul here is kind of mingling these three concepts together, never like confusing them and making justification sanctification or making sanctification justification, but he's putting them next to each other in perfect harmony as they they work together intertwined, never, again, never blending or confusing the two, but never letting them stand apart from each other either. They go, they go together in God's perfect design for how salvation plays out in a person's life, all right? Well, enough of me just talking about all these terms and being philosophical about it. Let's look at the uh, what, what the text actually says, and I might have to do some adjusting here. Not too bad. Oh, and I'm still on the, uh, the wrong side of the screen. So let me put that there, and let me move my face over here. I just kind of like it like like it better when I'm over here. Yeah, right there. Great. Okay. Now we're ready to roll. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We could spend the next 10 hours talking about that. <laughs> I mean, how could I not stop after that verse, right? I mean, yeah, I know that's just one verse. I've just read a sentence, and now I've stopped. But how could I not stop after that verse? Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All right. I was just talking about justification and sanctification and our future glorification. What is Paul talking about here in Romans 8.1? Well, even though he's going to be talking about sanctification a lot here, and he's even going to talk about glorification, here he's talking about justification, that past tense legal declaration of God that happens once for all time. He, he declares one of his people innocent when that person believes and becomes a child of God and is adopted into God's family. It is a declaration that is made once for all. I mean, you know... Uh, this concept of double jeopardy, how a person cannot be tried twice for the same crime. When a person is declared innocent of a crime, that person cannot be tried again. Well, that's what Paul has in view here, is God has justified everybody who has believed in Jesus. If you are a believer in the finished work of Christ alone, for your salvation. God has declared you innocent once for all, and you will not be tried again. You, you, you will not have condemnation ever 
come onto your account. God will never condemn you. He will never cast you away. He will never put your salvation in jeopardy. He'll never put you on the stand and question you. You will never lose your salvation. You will never have your salvation diminished. You have total, free, and full salvation because you have been declared innocent by God. You have been reckoned as totally righteous by the creator of the universe. And there is therefore now no condemnation for you if you are a believer in Jesus, if you have been placed in Christ by faith. No condemnation. If you are in Christ, think about this. If you are in Christ, God would condemn you just as soon as he would condemn his own son. When's that going to happen? What are the chances that that will ever happen? The chances are zero. The answer to when that will happen is never. God will by no means cast off those who are in Christ because there is security of, of salvation to the uttermost. There is security in Jesus because when you believe in him, you become one with him. You are in him. You are hidden in him with all eternity. You are exalted with him in the heavenly places. We'll see in a few weeks when we look at Ephesians. You are totally and utterly secure and innocent, guilt-free, non-condemned forever in Christ. So let's just make sure you know we're clear on this, because if you don't get this, the rest of chapter 8 certainly won't make sense. If you recognize that you are a sinner who justly deserves the condemnation of God, who is eternally holy, perfect creator, your maker, who you willfully rebelled against. You are a sinner who deserves his condemnation. If you recognize this, and then you also recognize that you can't help yourself, that there's nothing you can do to clean up your act, and then you further recognize that God cleans up your act for you, in the sense of he became a man, he lived the life you could never live, he died the death that you deserved in your place on the cross, he rose again on the third day and ascended to the right hand of God, and you can only be made right with God, you can only be declared innocent, your mess can only be cleaned up before him by what Jesus has done for you, if you recognize that, and you believe in Jesus by faith alone for your salvation, then there is therefore now no condemnation for you ever, ever, ever. The way that this is worded in English, of course, is nice and neat. There is now no condemnation. But there's this cool thing that can happen in the Greek where there can be a a double negative given. So if this was transliterated directly from the Greek, and and sorry, that's what Paul did in this verse. I forgot to mention that important part. He inserted a double negative. If this was to be transliterated directly from the Greek into the English, it would read, there is now no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, we don't speak that way in English. That's bad English. There is now no, no condemnation. That A double negative actually 
you know, creates a positive. There is now no no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that means that there is, there is condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It would just be confusing in English. But the way that we could show this in English, especially in our day and age of communicating online, is to put that NO in all caps. Therefore, there is now NO condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul here, under the inspiration of the Spirit as he wrote this letter, was emphasizing the reality that there is absolutely zero, there is no condemnation, none, not a trace, not a sliver, ever, will there be condemnation for those who are in Christ. When God says that we are saved, when we are born again through believing what Jesus has done, trusting in Jesus, we are absolutely, totally, completely saved by God, never to have any condemnation fall on us ever again. So if you are somebody who has believed in this good news, the gospel message, that starts really with bad news, that you are a sinner in need of condemnation and you cannot help yourself, but you have looked to Jesus and you've believed on his finished work for all your salvation, and even shall I say, your exaltation. Again, we'll come back to this in Ephesians. But if you are relying on Christ completely, this is just really great news. There is no condemnation before you, on you, in you. You are completely declared innocent through and through, once forevermore. God has said it. He will never go back on it. You are free in Christ. You are innocent in Christ because he has paid it all. And that is just such great news. Some of you who are Latter-day Saints or were Latter-day Saints, either way, you know just how difficult it is to try to keep up and act. You know how difficult it is to try to perform based on rules and laws. You know how difficult it is to seek to be perfect in all that you do. And it's not just that it's difficult, it's that it's impossible. It is absolutely impossible for you not only to obey God's law, but to even be a consistent law to yourself. You'll even break your own rules and your own principles, your own standards. You're never going to be perfectly consistent. And so what is a good judge going to do, and in this case, the good judge, the creator of all things, the one who will set all things right, the one who is in charge of of making all things right in the end and judging all people, what is he going to do when he sees your inconsistencies, your errors, and even, yes, your sins, your willful rebellion against him? What is a good judge going to do? Well, the good judge, God himself, is going to condemn you. He is going to pronounce you guilty. He's not going to say, well, but you did some good stuff over here, so you're free to go. No. The only way that you can be free from the condemnation of the good judge, God, is by recognizing that Jesus paid the penalty for you. That Jesus took on your mess. He put it on his account. 
He suffered the wrath of God, Romans 5, 9. Looked at this last week. Jesus suffered the wrath of God against sin when he died in your place for your sins. So that in this great exchange, you may receive the righteousness of God and forevermore be declared innocent. Starting now and all through eternity, be declared innocent. Isn't that amazing? That's absolutely amazing. And, and what happens with some people when they see a verse like Romans 8.1, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and they, they hear it for what it is, and they understand what it says, some religious people, including many Latter-day Saints, will jump to, well, that can't be right, because then those people will just go do whatever they want. There's no condemnation. That means there's no, there's no punishment. There are no consequences. So people just are going to go out, and they're going to start robbing banks in the nude while cheating on their spouses and, I don't know, smoking heroin. You know, they just think of the worst possible, <laughs> the worst possible scenario. They just push all these sins together that we don't like. They're going to lie. They're going to steal. They're going to kill people. You just push them all together, and that, that's what they're going to do because there are no consequences now, right? Well, on the one hand, this can be a very uh, honest and sincere question that deserves to be answered. On another hand, it can just be a fear thing where someone has been so trained to make everything about the performance of humans to look and act perfectly that they're just afraid. Like, well, if we don't keep up our act of being perfect, then people are just going to be like really bad and stuff. Well, uh, for that person, I just want to say... Hey, uh, sorry to break it to you, but people are already really bad and stuff. Maybe you're not going out in the nude robbing banks and smoking heroin and cheating on your wife and lying and stealing. But what does Jesus ask us to do here? Well, to look at our heart and to say, have you done all those things in your heart? Hmm. The one who hates his brother is a murderer. The one who looks at a woman to lust after her after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Hmm. Yeah, all that stuff's already going on, isn't it? And so you see the behavior is just the fruit of the root that is in every human heart. And we are looking to address the root here, not just the fruit. That's what performance does. The performance mindset says, well, we have to go you know, try to maintain all these, uh, the, the fruit that's coming off all these branches to make ourselves look like a good tree. Well, all the whole time the root is rotten and all you're doing is shining up rotten apples and painting beautiful oranges. It's all fake. True fruit is produced by a good root. And that's what Romans is getting to. That's what Paul's getting to. That's what God is getting to as you read this. That's what he's addressing in your heart. And so um, let's consider then for the honest inquirer of, uh, you know, this whole ordeal saying, well, if there's no condemnation, does that mean we just do whatever we want? Christians just go out and do whatever they want? Well, I think Paul actually gets to that here in Romans 8. Let's just keep reading now. Romans 8, 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Stop. Does Paul talk here like Christians are just going to go do whatever they want? 
He says, no, 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 no. For the true believer, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. So this is opposed to man's law. This is even different than the law of Moses, the commandments written on stone. This is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. That's different, isn't it? The law of the spirit of life in Christ. What does this law do? It sets the believer free from the law of sin and of death. There's freedom from sin in this. So someone is tempted to think, well, a person who is justified in Christ, that person will be further entrenched in his sin because he's no longer seeking to perform. Now he's free. He's free to go sin. Wrong. Paul says he's actually free from sin. When you are in this performance mindset of trying to maintain your own good works in order to earn justification, you're actually bound to sin. Because what you're going to find is you're imperfect. Over and over and over again, you're going to fail because you're doing it on your own strength. The law gives you all these demands, but doesn't give you the power to do it. That's your life. That's what you're facing over and over again. Whereas those who are in Christ, they are free from the law. Those who are in Christ are born again. Those who are in Christ have a new heart. Those who are in Christ are free from sin. Now, do they still have the flesh that lingers? where there's constant temptation to sin, and will they still fail and sin against God? Yes. In this life, yes. However, there's a freedom from sin in the sense of sin is no longer the Christian's master. The one who has rejected the gospel of grace in order to participate in a fake gospel that's actually not good news, it's bad news, a message of works righteousness, trying to earn his own righteousness, that person has sin as his master. That person isn't free. That person is enslaved to his flesh. But the Christian now is free from the law of sin and can actually do battle with sin now. The person who has been redeemed by God can actually wage war against his flesh, against the desire to sin, and can choose to live for God. The person who's in the performance mindset cannot. And Paul bears this out in the following verses. I'm going to read all the way through verse 8 this time. Verse 3, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So here you have two groups of people, those who are free from condemnation 
who are absolutely justified once for all in Jesus and those who are in the flesh. Those who are justified recognize that Christ came to condemn sin in the flesh, and he came that the righteous requirement of the law, which is a holy heart, might be fulfilled in us, not through our efforts of obeying the law, but by recognizing that Jesus paid it all and that we are set free from sin in Jesus by believing in what he has done, that the righteousness of God comes to us and that we are now enabled, empowered to live for God as we are led by the Spirit. The other group of people are those in the flesh who have a performance mindset with God, who are seeking to earn God's favor through their works, apart from the Spirit, apart from justification, apart from the empowerment that comes from God himself. And over and over again, they will actually find that they are enslaved to sin. They are unable to perform. One side, justified in Christ, free from condemnation, that starts their life of sanctification, that shows they are free from sin, that they are able to wage war because they've been empowered. The other side is seeking to earn justification from God, and they never obtain it. And actually what they find is that they are enslaved to sin, and they remain in the flesh. And this is extremely sad because look at what Paul says. The mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. Yeah, even those people who claim they're performing for God, they're actually hostile toward God because they are rejecting His grace. They are rejecting what He has done. They are putting their hand up and saying, no, I do not want what you have provided. I'm going to do this on my own. They're hostile toward God. Their minds cannot even subject themselves to the law of God. It will not happen. The mind that is set on the flesh, that is set on performance, does not subject itself to the law of God. Even though that's what they say they're doing, in reality, that's not what's happening. Their their minds are not even able to do that. The person who has rejected the grace of God is not even able to obey God. And another inability Those who are performing to try to earn justification from God, they cannot please him, verse 8 says. They cannot. It is just an impossibility. You cannot please God if you are rejecting his grace. You cannot please God. You cannot serve God. You cannot be free from the power of sin if you are doing it on your own to try to earn something from God. Your sanctification has to begin with justification. Because when you are justified, you are recognizing the grace of God. You are believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You are giving all the full weight of your trust over to God and and recognizing that He did it. Not that you could do it, but that He did it. And then He takes you in. He embraces you. Absolutely He will. No one who comes to Him in faith will He cast out. He takes you in. And then he changes you, he changes your heart, and he sets you on a new path, and you actually have the power to live for him. The righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in you. He gives you a new heart, he gives you new passions, and he gives you the power to live for him. That is the Christian life. You can't, get, you can't put sanctification before justification. It must come after justification. 
Otherwise, you cannot please God. You're, you're being hostile toward God. Very, very important. Well, there's so much to see in Romans chapter 8. Uh, so many good things. I'm going to jump down. I'm going to jump down to verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Great, great words. God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. What a promise. Well, here in Romans 8, um, we see so many uh, great truths. <laughs> that it, I mean, really, each verse is a sermon. But um, consider, let me pull this back up, uh, consider verses 29 and 30. There are certain people whom God foreknew, and those people were predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus, so that Jesus himself would be preeminent among many people. That's what verse 29 is saying, the firstborn among many brethren. And verse 30 kind of gives the whole chain here, saying, these people whom God predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus those whom he predestined, he also called, that same group. And that same group of people he called, he also justified. And that same group of people he justified, he glorified. Now, this is all in past tense. That doesn't mean everyone to whom this will ever happen, has, that it's already happened. That's not true. I mean, for instance, I was not justified whenever Paul wrote this. Even though he was writing in past tense, I, someone who would later, 2,000 years later, be justified, had not yet been justified. And of course, he includes glorified there, too. Not only does God predestine them and call them and justify them, he glorified, past tense, them. Well, no one has yet been glorified. That's still future. That's at the coming of Christ. So what's the, what's the purpose of the past tense? I think it just shows it's a done deal, don't you? Why is Paul writing in past tense when there's... Still a lot of stuff yet to happen. Well, it's because from God's perspective, this is a done deal. Those whom God predestined, that all happened in the past, in eternity past. So that's past tense, not only in the way Paul wrote it, but in, in the real timeline too. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Well, that calling continually happens as he calls people to himself, particularly these people whom he predestined. They are called by him to be justified. Calling and justification go hand in hand. So when a person who has been predestined by God hears the gospel presentation and believes, that is evidence of God working in his heart, calling him in that moment. 
And then he, the result of that is justification. Then he's justified. And all of those who are justified, who go through sanctification also in this life, all of them will be glorified. It's a done deal from God's perspective. And so here we see another element of our salvation where God is sovereign over it, isn't he? God is in control of who is saved and who will be condemned. God is uh, so much bigger, stronger, powerful, and in control than man, and even more than man thinks he is in many cases. God is sovereign over salvation. What an amazing thing. So that's what is being said here in Romans chapter 8, 29 and 30, that God is the one who predestines, calls, justifies, and will eventually glorify. But I want to show you something. Again, if you're a Latter-day Saint, former Latter-day Saint, this should be of interest to you. The Joseph Smith translation of Romans 8, 29, and 30, it says, starting in verse 29, For him whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to his own image, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Okay, so let's stop there and compare that with Romans 8.29 here in the actual Bible. Romans 8.29, as Paul wrote it, says, For those whom God foreknew, he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Those were predestined whom God foreknew, to be conformed to the image of his Son. Joseph Smith says, For him whom he did foreknow, he predestined to be conformed to his own image. So what's he doing here? Well, he's changing it from God predestined a group of people to be called justified, glorified. He's changing that to the Father, Heavenly Father, predestined his own Son, to be conformed to his image. So instead of the father predestining a group of people to be conformed to the image of the son, it's the father predestining the son to be conformed to the father's image. Does that make sense? Well, let's look at verse 30, because that's also skewed. Moreover, him whom he did predestinate, this is, again, Joseph Smith, and I'll just go ahead and insert who the pronouns are talking about. Moreover, the Son, whom the Father did predestinate, the Son, the Father also called. And the Son, whom he called, the Father called, the Son, the Father also sanctified. And the Son, whom the Father sanctified, the Son, the Father also glorified. So instead of this group of people who are uh, becoming, because of their predestination by God, becoming the called, the justified, and the glorified, this group of believers that God is sovereign over. Instead, what you have is the Son being called by the Father, and he couldn't say justified. Now, I mean, isn't that interesting? The text of Romans 8, 30, it says justified. God calls and justifies believers. 
Well, here, Joseph Smith couldn't say that about Jesus because if he said Jesus was justified, well, that means he had sin on his account and he had to be declared righteous. He couldn't do that. So instead he changes it to sanctified, which I find interesting. So it says, the Father called the Son, the Father sanctified the Son, the Father glorified the Son, is the way Joseph Smith changed that verse. And he did change this verse. There is zero reason to do this based on Greek manuscripts. We have many Greek manuscripts of Romans 8, uh, of the book of Romans in various places. None of them show evidence that this is the Father talking about the Son. This was a change by Joseph Smith. And I believe that Joseph Smith changed this because he did not want to believe that God is sovereign over salvation. He did not want to believe in a gospel of grace. And what does God being sovereign over salvation lead to? It leads to it is all of God's grace, not of what we do, but completely, totally of what God does. This is God's amazing work of grace to save a people for himself, a people to purify a people for his own possession, equipped for every good deed. Well, if you reject Joseph Smith's translation and, frankly, his false gospel of performance, and you see God's goodness in a gospel of grace, and you see justification that is freely given based on the finished work of Jesus, let me finish this off with some really, really great news from Romans 8.31 and following. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? That means his chosen ones. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How's that for an encouraging passage? If you are somebody who has come to find salvation in Christ by faith alone, if you, if you are someone who has been justified by God based on the finished work of Jesus, how sweet is this passage? Who's going to bring a charge against you? You're chosen of God. Who could bring a charge against you? Who could separate you from the love of God? Or what could ever separate you from the love of God? You're God's chosen. He's brought you to this point. He he has predestined you to be conformed to the image of his Son, and nothing's going to break that eternal chain that God has set in motion here. This foreknowing, predestining, calling, justifying, glorifying. Who could mess that up? Who could interrupt God's plans? 
Who could bring a charge against you? Who could separate you from your Savior? Nobody. It could never, ever happen. But the flip side of that is, if you are someone who has rejected God's gift of grace in order to maintain a mind of the flesh that is hostile toward God, that cannot please God, that is unable to submit to the law of God, then you will never, ever be able to taste of the love of Christ. You will never have these promises. You are actually condemned already, and that will continue through all eternity if you reject what God has given, this amazing, wonderful, inexpressible, indescribable gift of grace, salvation in the person and work of Jesus. So uh, my encouragement to you, of course, is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today so that you will be saved. Put the full weight of your trust, your hope in him. Hitch your wagon, so to speak, to Jesus. Otherwise, there's only condemnation for you. You will no longer, uh, I shouldn't say no longer, you will never be able to, that's better. You will never be able to call upon God as your father, but he will only be your judge. But for those who are in Christ, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We will answer to our Lord Jesus, but we will not meet God as our judge at the great white throne. Instead, we are forever children of God. We are forever in God's family. We are forever justified. We are forever saved because of what he has done. That is the choice that is set before you today. And I hope that if there's just anything keeping you from truly believing in Christ, that you would either reach out to me or reach out to a Christian that you know and have those conversations you need to have and find out what it is that uh, that is holding you back. Have all those stumbling blocks removed so that you would run into the arms of Christ and that you would forever remain there based on His sovereign goodness. Thanks for sticking with me to the end. Romans 8 is an amazing chapter. I hope this has been a blessing to you, and I hope that you press forward in faith. God bless.